You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. Ryan Carey is exactly the type of person that the Golf Yacht podcast was created to showcase. A lawyer by training and a practicing attorney, around 13 years ago, Ryan Carey and his partner, Bob Zafian, identified an opportunity in the world of golf memorabilia. And in 2006, they created an online business called Green Jacket Auctions that's grown into the largest auction house of its kind. To give you an idea of the scope of Ryan's business, its current auction features more than 1,000 lots with items ranging in price from $25 to more than $200,000. To appreciate those numbers, this morning I went on eBay and searched for golf memorabilia, and I found only 124 items ranging from a Francis We Met trophy listed at around twenty grand, to an unsigned photo of Jack Nicklaus kissing the Claret Jug for $5.55. So it's pretty clear who the category leader is in golf collectibles. Based on their passions for golf and for rare sports items, Ryan and Bob have created what's become a thriving enterprise that's expanded into related services, including appraisals, authentication, and private searches for hard-to-find items. And in the process, they've also established reputations as leading authorities on just about everything related to golf. And as their company name suggests, everything related to the Masters Tournament. I've met nor spoken with Ryan prior to this interview, but from what I can discern from his footprints on the Internet, he's a native of Tampa, Florida, an avid golfer, a fly fisherman, and a lover of fine wines. He currently resides in Boston, and hopefully he's made the conversion to being a Red Sox fan. Ryan, thanks for talking to us today, and welcome to Golf Yeah. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Now, are you a Tampa Bay Rays fan, or have you... Uh... I am definitely a Tampa Bay Rays fan, not a fan <laughs> of any Boston sports, except for... I told my wife we're allowed to root for the Celtics, because we have no competing interests. Okay. I hope you have the courage to wear a Tampa Bay hat in Boston, because that takes some guts. <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> okay. So listen, maybe we could start with your backstory on how you and Bob got started, where you met. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, Bob and I were both, you know, kind of dabbled in golf and just loved golf. And we started interacting on the internet. Just, you know, the people that really kind of geek out about golf history and golf memorabilia, it was, a, you know, it's a finite group of people. And we just stumbled across each other that way in the search for, you know, the rarest pieces of golf memorabilia. And so we started doing some deals together. And inevitably, you know, met through that. And the crazy part about that is, you know, when we decided to form a business together, Bob and I had only met each other one time ever in the first four or five years of our business's existence. Wow. So, you know, it was like the early days of, you know, while the internet had been around for several years at that point, like this was pretty unusual. You know, it was not as normal. This was like pre-Facebook, pre all that stuff where, you know, the Facebook movie comes out and everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. This was literally our side gig that we were kind of, you know, not telling our main employers about type of thing. Yeah. So it was kind of an interesting start in that way. Now, Bob is from and apparently still lives in Denville, New Jersey. Is that the case? Correct. Yeah. He's a little bit outside of Manhattan. 
Okay. Is that where you run most of your business in terms of where all the items are shipped or or isn't there any shipping involved at all? Um, Correct. Yeah, no, we take possession of all items. So we ship all items. So we've got a warehouse. The warehouse is in an undisclosed location. We don't like to publicize it just because as you can imagine, you know, people might want to target it because of all the valuable items that are inside. So we never list that address. If you ever see an address of ours, it's never actually where our warehouse is. And so, yeah, and he works out of there and that's where we do most of our work from. Okay. Now you went to law school. And then you practice law for a while. Do you still practice now? Oh, no, no, no. I stopped. Uh, I practiced law, practiced at a big firm in Tampa for about a little over four years. And about 2010, the green jacket was still pretty small, but we were selling some items. To be frank, <laughs> Tiger Woods kind of talked some shit about us and it was the best thing that ever happened to us. It really kind of showed us, like TMZ picked it up, all these newspapers picked it up, and it really showed me that I might really want to focus on Green Jacket as my primary business. Okay. Can you talk about the shit that Tiger talked about you? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So Tiger had, you know, in the year or two before that, left Titleist to go to Nike, and uh, Titleist, one of their vice presidents, was really upset by this. It, it was Tiger's like right hand man, and Tiger had given him the actual irons that Tiger used for some portion of the Tiger Slam, among other items. This guy was like Tiger's best friend and Titleist vice president. Well, now that Tiger's at Nike, you know, the guy decides to sell everything. He's not attached to them anymore. He's not friends with Tiger anymore. He doesn't talk to Tiger. And during a press conference, a reporter asks Tiger about the items we have up for auction. And Tiger basically alludes to the fact that they're fake. He doesn't straight up say that, but he Tiger says, I don't know about those irons. I have them in my garage. You know, ignoring the fact that more than one set of irons were used over a, you know, a one-year period. And so we end up having to have the consigner, the title as vice president, take a polygraph test just as like a kind of a showmanship thing, but, you know, also to prove that, you know, it was our word against Tigers at that point. And of course he passed the polygraph and that was when like TMZ and everyone picked it up and everything. And that really got us a lot of publicity and really was our first, like, I would say really, you know, successful auction where it was like, oh, wow, we can really make some money at doing this. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tiger. Yeah, exactly. It kind of came full circle. We've worked with Tiger since then. And so it's all kind of came full circle. I think it's all good now. But, you know, at the time, it was like a really, really big deal for us. Yeah. It's like posting pictures of your ex-girlfriend on the internet right? <laughs> or videos, right? Whatever gets publicity, I guess. Yeah, I guess. So you run three major auctions a year. It's not like eBay where they're running auctions all the time. Now you have a thousand items in the current auction. Is that around the same number that runs each time or does it fluctuate? Yeah. We've sort of made the business decision that instead of having auctions, you know, say once a month or whatever, we like to create this buzz around our auctions and make it kind of a special event. Uh, We've got a really good core group of followers, of collectors that love to follow our auctions. And we're just worried if we have them all the time, it'll feel less special. And so we've sort of gone the route of having bigger auctions, but we also didn't want to abandon our roots. We didn't want to be the guys that only sell the really expensive stuff as people like to do as you get more successful. We still want to sell the $25 items. We still want to be the ones that sell a Fred Couples autographed golf ball. We don't really want to abandon that just because we're selling $200,000 trophies or something even more than that. We don't want to you know, get rid of the little collectors because that's how all collectors start. And even a lot of our big collectors, that's where they started. They start buying these little Masters Tournament knickknacks. And next thing you know, they're buying something you know more valuable or they get more into the history of the game. Sure. 
Now, initially, my understanding is you had to go out and actually look for the high value items as kind of the cornerstones of the auctions. But do you have to still do that or did they come to you now more naturally? I mean, yes. Listen, obviously things come more naturally when you have, you know, 13 years in the business, you just made so many more connections and we get so much more word of mouth. I mean, if somebody has a really significant item and say they tell a friend about it, you know, we get a lot of that. Oh, you got to contact these guys, Green Jacket Auctions, or you got to contact these guys that I saw on the Golf Channel or something like that. So yes, we get a lot of things that way. I think the bigger portion of it is just fostering the good relationships. I mean, this is a quality over quantity game. We, you know, are good friends with and play golf with and go visit and stay in their houses of the big, big collectors. And the market is really dominated by, you know, these handful of a couple dozen, few dozen, very, very large collectors throughout the world that they really drive the kind of bigger ticket items that really drive our auction. And then when you talk about a Jack Nicholas flag or something like that, you know, we can get those pretty easily. And, and those are popular, you know, just to the masses. Yeah. What's the most expensive item that you guys have auctioned over the, the years? Yeah, the auction record for golf is the first Masters jacket. That would be Horton Smith. That sold for six hundred eighty-two grand back in 2013. And that still holds the auction record. And that probably will have the record for some time for right now. Yeah. Have you had any wacky items that... Wacky, yeah. You know, earlier on, I'm sure we were more likely to sell something wacky. I remember selling some John Daly stuff. It was like a John Daly autographed Miller Light beer or something like that. <laughs> okay. That uh, we thought might go like a little viral or something. It did not. I think it sold for like $32. But it's something that we would never sell in 2019. But, uh, you know, several years ago, hey, why not try it? Yeah. Are there any items that you refuse to sell, types of items, personal items of pros? Or... Yeah, some like, you know, we don't get too much offered of that. It'd really be more of... There was a period, in the, especially in the 1990s, where all these like fake limited edition stuff was made. I mean, they were really limited edition, but like you know, limited to 5,000. If something's limited to 5,000, it's not actually limited. It's not hard to find at all. And so a lot of the things you find at charity auctions, a lot of the big framed items just haven't held their value. And we don't really want to get into that game. I think there's a, a fine line between what I would call a collectible and memorabilia. And so we try to get more towards the memorabilia and, you know, the type of stuff we want to sell. You know, it's, it's not a business where you don't feel any need to cut any corners. Yeah. Have any studies been done on the uh, collectibles, golf collectibles as an asset class in terms of their ability to hold its value, you know, compared to artwork or, you know, vintage cars? No, but I'd love for somebody to do that because we've got a couple collectors that figured that out early. There's very few people that like, call and ask us our advice as to what we think makes sense. And while I would never, ever suggest that somebody buy purely as an investment, I want them to buy because they love the item. But if you get your hands on the right items and at the right price, it's, I always say like you'll accidentally make money on it. So buy it for the right reasons. I want you to love it. I want you to not care about the price that it's going to sell for in 10 years, but there are some items you can do very well with. And I've got one particular collector in London that was really at the forefront of that. And he kind of let it be known to us, hey, if you ever have something that you think is a good price, I don't care what it is or the how much it costs, I'll buy it. And let me just say he has done very, very well but for you know being really early on that. He kind of recognized that golf was undervalued compared to most other memorabilia and collectibles as they started appreciating in the last decade or so. Yeah. Are there types of products that, that tend to hold their value more than others, like vintage clubs or artwork or books or 
Yeah, sure. So it's, I mean, the, my simple lesson for everybody is to buy the best. So a lot of people, what they end up doing is collect quantity. So, you know, they will buy a thousand different $200 items over, you know, a 10 year period or whatever, because it's easier to do that and not realize how much it adds up. But now you just have $200,000 worth of stuff that's actually very hard to sell a bunch of $200 items. I would have much rather that person buy 10, you know, $20,000 items or something of that nature, buy the best, buy the expensive items. Even if it seems like a lot at the time, they were the ones that go up in value the most. Your $500 items don't really appreciate much in value. They'll always be worth that, you know, just for inflation. Your items that are five, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, those are the ones that really see the appreciation. Okay. Now, you make a big deal on your website about transparency, and you go back all the way to 2006 in terms of I could see what was sold 13 years ago. Why do you think that's so important? You know, I never understood why other auction houses don't do that. It was just, I, you know, now that we're 13 years in, it looks like a big deal. Like, wow, these guys, you know, you can see even things I sold that maybe I'm not proud of the price 13 years later. You can see all of that. I don't understand why auction houses don't. Don't all do that. To me, it was just a no-brainer. You know, every website has that feature. Just let the stuff stay up there, old auctions. And we do. And because of that, I think it's actually benefited us because people are able to go back, look through all the old ones. Just they can really geek out at some of the really cool things that we've sold, but they can also have a price reference and see how much things have changed. Just because we sold something for a lot less 10 years ago, you know, now that we're 10 years later, it doesn't necessarily mean we did a poor job. It also can show that the market has changed as well. So it's just a really important historical record. I mean, it's the truth. Why not let the truth, you know, hang out there? Sure. And it makes you more credible as a seller or a broker. So if I Understood your website correctly, Ryan. You get a 20% consignment fee from the sellers and 15% markup on the sales, which are pretty healthy margins. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. We charge everything in the auction has a 20% buyer's premium. And then, of course, we charge a seller fee as well. Yeah, that's accurate. Okay. So, has anybody tried to buy your business for those kind of healthy margins? You know, yeah, of course. We get a lot of contacts of people that want to invest. We get a lot of, you know, just over the last couple of years, I would say a lot more people on like more of the private equity side that are more, you know, want to purchase the business. I don't know. It's just not something I'm 38 years old. This is not something that, you know, I necessarily want to sell anytime soon. I would, you know, I'm obsessed with control and quality. And so the idea of selling to somebody, they probably want me to still run it, right? So the idea of selling it to somebody and then still running it for the next three to five years with an earnout or something like that doesn't really appeal to me. I mean, this is my baby. Again, I, it's just, you know, why do it? I mean, we, again, we have three auctions a year. If I wanted to sell it, I'd ramp it up to four or five. I'd open up a web store. I do all this other stuff, profit maximize and then sell it. You know, we are not, you know, we're not a profit maximizing company. We are a quality company and that's just, you know, how we've built it and how we've done it for 13 years. And, you know, why stop now? Okay. Do you have anybody that you consider a competitor? You know, I used to think eBay was a competitor. The big auction house, Heritage, they do like everything. They do cars and coins and comic books and guitars. You know, they're the massive company. They did, I think, close to a billion dollars with a sale last year. They don't do golf as well. They try to do it sometimes. They did get a good collection about four or five or six years ago that, you know, I wish we had gotten. I think we should have had. Other than that, I think we've done well against them. And there's a few other auction houses. There's some competitors, of course, but, you know, almost a level where I want those competitors to do well because I think it's better for the, the entire market. Don't get me wrong. I want to remain number one. I wouldn't want someone to overtake us, but it doesn't, you know, I think the time for that to have happened, you know, 
stopped a couple of years ago, a few years ago. And so right now we're, I think we're pretty far ahead and, you know, we're going to try, you know, keep doing things the right way and hopefully we'll maintain that. Yeah. When you get up into the big ticket items, do you compete with the Sotheby's of the world? So that's actually the, so the crazy thing is Sotheby's and some of the other big auction houses, they did golf back in the day. I mean, Sotheby's last sale was, I think, think maybe even 2006, possibly 2007, right as we were starting. I was at the auction and that was the last time they ever did golf. And they were more into it for the really antiques, I guess I would say. And so they saw that market going down, which it was, it was a little inflated and it started going down. And I think they thought that meant golf was dead or golf was done with. And they kind of ignored you know, the Masters Tournament and Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods and, and the whole new market that that whole thing was bringing. And so, you know, we started, you know, right on the heels of them getting out of it. We were internet only. We were kind of the new thing. And so we really benefited from that. Will they eventually get back into it? I'm not sure. The big auction houses have really, you know, they're publicly traded. They've really staked their claim on, you know, selling $100 million paintings and that's going to make or break their quarter. So will they get into the, you know, the smaller stuff like golf memorabilia? I don't know. And it wouldn't bother me if they did. I mean, they'd probably have to buy me to get into it seriously anyways, but I don't know that they will or will try, but uh, you know, we welcome it. You know, that's actually another cool reason why it's cool that we do these $25 items and the hundred dollar items because the big auction houses would never want to do that. They would only want the good stuff, which, you know, 90% of the market is not the big stuff, if not more. Yeah, you're right. So talk to me a little bit about your appraisals and authentication business. I mean, are there legal risks involved in that area? I mean, if something proves to be a fake that you've authenticated? Uh, I don't know about on the authentication part. I mean, it's something to think about. I think that we've always taken the approach like just give your press, you know, your professional opinion, never cut corners, give your, you know, your absolute honest opinion, not influenced by any other outside factors. And if you end up being wrong, you end up being wrong. But, you know, that's kind of where we take that. I mean, I think I care much more about if we accidentally sold something at auction that later on somebody thought wasn't authentic, you know, having to give that person a refund. Because if it, let's say it was a couple of years later, it's a lot harder for me to go back to the original person who sold to me and collect that money from a private individual. You know, it's much easier for them to the buyer to come to me and seek a refund. And so while we've had a couple of times where I can think of issuing a refund, you know, other than that, it hasn't been that big of an issue. It's definitely something to think about, but we just try to be extremely selective. And that's what, you know, in 2006, when we started eBay, like I said, was the big competitor, but eBay is just totally buyer beware. Like you don't know what you're getting. You better be your own expert when you're a buyer on eBay. And so we kind of provided a different way to do that where like, you know, especially when we started Tiger Woods autographs were so hot and they sold for a lot of money because Tiger just was not a very willing signer, especially when he was young. And so that created a market where eBay, 98% of the stuff was not real. And, you know, especially back then. And we started an auction house where we were saying no to all these autographs, the fake ones, which like, you know, you shouldn't pat me on the back for selling things that are real, but it was like almost seemed like a novel concept in 2006 to only accept you know, guaranteed real autographs. And that's what we did. And, you know, then our autograph prices started selling for double or triple what similar ones on eBay would sell for. And well, then the owners of those autographs took note of it. And of course, you know, if they're going to sell them, why would you sell on eBay if Green Jacket Auctions was getting, you know, 
2x, 3x, you know, multiple on that same item. So then we started getting all the good stuff to sell and it kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. Now your partner has supposedly or purportedly the world's largest collection of golf signatures. Is that correct? Yeah. I don't know if I would call it his collection because a lot of them are just exemplars on a computer. And so he has really sought out over the last couple of decades, known, authentic examples of every golf autograph and multiple of each. So if you want to know if a Bobby Jones autograph is real, he will have exemplars, you know, from legal documents, from signed checks, from, you know, things that, you know, we really, you know, are close to hundred percent certain or authentic, have a scanned image of that so that you can see, because Bobby Jones is the perfect example because his autograph changed so much over the years and you can almost to a, to a relative degree of certainty, date a Bobby Jones autograph to within a year or two for a lot of stages of his life based on the way he changed his signature over time. And so things like that are a good example of it. And, you know, again, the big authentication companies, they may be very good at authenticating a Jack Nicholas autograph. But when you talk about some of the early ones, Cyril Tollies or, or, you know, Travers or, you know, someone like that, we're going to have a better database than them a lot of times. And so and we openly share it with those companies as well, because we want the, the golf autograph industry to be as, you know, as reputable as possible. Do golf signatures tend to be worth less than other sports because golfers are so accessible or more accessible than other professional athletes? Yes, as long as you're talking about like 1960s to present or so, which is, of course, the bulk of the market. Yes, 100%. And that actually disappoints a lot of people when they, you know, contact us about this program. They got autographed at the JCPenney Classic in 1983 that has Jack Nicholas's autograph on it. And it's like, well, sorry, everybody has that same thing or something similar from their local tournament. And so, you know, that is absolutely right. So the good thing is we don't see the crazy fake signatures that like, you know, decimated the baseball market where the FBI had to get involved because of all the fake Mickey Mantles and Ted Williams balls and stuff. We don't really have that in golf. I mean, you know, the probably the most desirable autograph of the last 50 years is Arnold Palmer. And I'd be willing to bet that Arnold Palmer also signed the most number of autographs in the past 50 years too. So it's, it's everybody's got their Arnold Palmer story. Everyone that ever met him got his autograph. And so that has really helped with, you know, with not seeing as many, you know, fake autographs or anything like that with the, the only exception to that in recent times has been Tiger Woods. Okay. Now you mentioned the guy in London who's kind of, has put you on, I don't want to say retainer, that's not the right word, but, but you have kind of a standing order from him to pick up stuff. Do you have many guys like that where you're looking for specific items where you're serving as a broker you know, what are they looking for? So, yeah, a lot of times it's completing a collection of some sort. Most people collect something specific. So if you're into trophies, then you want to find all the four major trophies. If you're into autographs, then you need to find an autograph of every single Masters champion, things of that nature. So we usually know what people are missing from some of those serious collections. If you'd like to find a ticket from every single Masters tournament dating back to 1934, then I know that you're missing a 1942 and we need to keep our eyes out for it. Things of that nature is what most people use this for privately. Okay. So what happens if a winning bidder fails to pay for their items? I mean, it doesn't happen a lot. I think that the crazy part about it is if it ever happens, it's usually like an $80 item in the auction. It's really wild. The The more expensive the item and the more expensive the purchase, the total bill, the quicker you usually get paid. The people that are tend to be collecting at the higher level or your more advanced collectors that 
are used to this whole routine. They know what they're getting into. They know what they're buying. They know what they're spending. And so it's just a quick wire transfer, credit card, whatever the next day. It tends to be your people that, oh, this would be a neat present for my dad. I've never been in an auction before and don't understand the whole process. And, you know, that tends to be a little bit harder. So it's more of us chasing them down, trying to get their credit card information for an $80 purchase. That seems to be the ones I'm making the calls on. So there's no, we don't really have any great examples of anybody kind of stiffing us on a bigger purchase, but we also vet, you know, we tend to know we vet who's registering with us and bidding at our auction, you know, so we know who these people are. Yeah. I don't know if you want to disclose this, but do you sell through most of the items in your auctions? In terms of like the successful sales rate or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's not a number that I track religiously. It's not a big metric of ours, but I think we probably sell between 88 and 93% in most wow. of our recent auctions. Yeah, something wow. like that. You know, maybe wow. a little more. And, and But a lot of that's strategic. I mean, we sell most items. Some items will have a reserve on them where they'll only sell if they get to X number of dollars. And a lot of that is us deciding it was still worth taking the item, even with the reserve. Or maybe we know this particular person, the collector, purchased it for a certain amount of money and they really don't want to lose money or don't want to lose that much money on it. And we'll still allow them to put a reserve on it so they don't lose their shirt on something. So we have a little bit of that as well. But you know, most items in our auction, I'd say 80 to 90% don't have a reserve at all. So you know, we tend to start bidding very low. So we sell almost everything. We sell, you know, maybe it's closer to 95% a lot of auctions. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Does it take a lot of people to run your operation? It seems like there's a lot of clerical functions involved. My business partner and I both work very hard at it. So we always have a couple people helping us. Right now, we've got one guy helping us with the photography and such. But for the most part, historically, we've done almost everything ourselves. And so that's why we do these three auctions a year. So we have a lot of time to lead up to that. And we've, you know, obviously developed a system over time where we, you know, preparing things over a couple month period. So there is a lot of work involved, but and if we ran auctions once a month, we would have to have a whole team of people. But since we just do three a year, we can do a lot of it ourselves and we don't mind working hard and getting it done. Yeah. It's like a tax attorney during tax season, right? I mean, you a lot of work in the preparation, but then when it's actually you hit the tax day, it's you get to sit back for a while, right? Well, and that's exactly right. And it's it's a hard deadline. Like we have to get it done. So there's no, yeah. oh, I've already worked 12 hours a day. I've already worked 16 hours a day. No, you just got to get it done. But you know what? Just like the tax attorney, all of a sudden tax day hits or with us, our auction hits, then I can go out and play golf. I can do whatever because, you know, that hard work's already done. Yeah. Now you mentioned Tiger Woods giving you a kind of a shot in the arm with respect to publicity in the other area. And I know you're a lawyer, so you're going to carefully word your response or maybe not want to respond at all. But you had some involvement, not necessarily positive with Augusta National recently. Can you talk about that? Or how can you describe having to do with the jacket sales? Can you give us any insight into what took place and for better or worse? (laughs) (laughs) You know, everything is resolved. We're good to go right now and we're better for it. And we're very happy to be moving forward now. Well, that's a great lawyer response. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I always hate it. I hate it when people get asked questions and then in an interview and like, don't want to talk about it or say (laughs) their lawyers will not talk about something. And now I'm like almost saying the same thing. So I'm that person usually in my car listening, saying, oh man, come on. That's all I wanted to hear. But anyways, we're thrilled to be out exactly where we are right now. We're very happy to be uh, moving forward with everything. Okay. Listen, I'm not going to put a gun to your head, but let me ask you a question that may be related because it's on your website. It says you're changing your name or your branding. Is yeah. it effect that related no, we, to the... We, we really want to... It's been something that we've been thinking about and it's something that we think will 
help us move forward with a name that you know, doesn't pigeonhole us as much into one category or one thing. We got a lot of people that think we only specialize in master's tournament or even modern memorabilia. And, you know, for an auction house to move forward, you know, we really need a different name. It's something we've been struggling with for years. It's something that when we have had private equity people or investors contact us, one of the first things is they wouldn't mind us changing our name. So it's like any brand, any company, it's a mental hurdle to change your name but we have got the specific market with our really core group of fans and clients. And it should be, you know, if anyone can change their name, it should be us. So, you know, this is not like Coca-Cola changing their name and people won't recognize it on the shelves. Uh, it should be as simple as, well, the email you receive is going to come from a different company now, but it'd be better branding for us. So we don't have an announcement yet as to any sort of new name or what it'll be or anything. It's not coming, you know, incredibly soon. It may not be till next year. We haven't figured it out, but we, you know, we do want people to know. And I'd like to get it done soon, but I just need to come up with, you know, the perfect everything, the perfect name, the perfect logo and everything that, Make sure that we've, you know, the lawyers have checked everything out that, you know, hey, we can use this, the domain's available. There's so much involved that I didn't really realize, you know, and so that's our next step is figuring out, you know, the best brand for us so that we can move forward. We'll still only be doing golf. A couple people have asked us that. No, 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 we don't want to move on. We're doing just golf, but we still want to be able to brand us in a way that better encompasses what we are going to be doing moving forward. Okay. So you can confirm for me that your name change has nothing to do with Augusta National putting a gun to your head and saying, change your name or we're putting you out of business. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it's, it's a branding thing that we need okay. to work on and, and I think it'll be better for it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you've played at Augusta National, correct? No, sir. Oh, you've never played there? No, no, no. Oh. I used to attend the Masters Tournament quite a bit. And uh, so I've seen the course probably more than any course I've actually played. But no, oh. I've never played it. So given your recent legal battles, you probably will never play the National. Well, you know what? No invites coming in the mail or on a, my phone recently. So, Ryan, you should have made that part of the settlement. You know, it's okay for me to not have anything like that. I, I like playing good courses. Don't get me wrong. And again, that course I've seen so many times, both on television and in person, that I feel like I've played it. Okay. Talk to us a little bit about your golfing background. When did you learn to play? How often do you play? Does your connection get you on the courses, private courses that others may not be able to play on? Yeah. I mean, I think my wife thinks I play too much, but I think I don't play enough, right? Is that the way it is? So yeah, I play a lot. I play as much as I can. You know, I'm somebody that works really hard for a certain period of time. And then when I'm free, I'm totally free. And also I need to play golf with a lot of clients. So I like to say that I play golf for a living which, you know, is mainly just to egg on my friends, but because I'm also not very good. But yeah, I like to say I play golf for a living because the number of connections you can make on a golf course, meeting people, you know, what I do, I'm not a salesman. I don't, you know, call up people and hound them to sell a particular item. What I do is foster relationships. I just make friends with other people in the golf community by playing golf with them, flying and, you know, playing faraway places with them. And if then five years later they want to, you know, buy or sell memorabilia through me, that's great. You know, and that's just a bonus. And so it's really just getting myself out there in the golf world. Yeah. And the best part about it is everything you do related to golf is a tax write-off because it's a business expense, right? Yes. My accountant has worked tirelessly <laughs> in uh, trying to justify a lot of these expenses because they seem like they're fun, but they are business related. And, you know, it's not my fault. I happen to choose golf as my industry. So, you know, yeah, that's the way I look at it. 
Right. So hopefully the IRS will look at it that way too. <laughs> I hope so. So, so anyway, a couple of years ago, you and Bob had a cable TV show called Golf Treasures, which was kind of like American Pickers, which I thought was great. I watched almost all of them. So why did those stop? And why hasn't something like the Golf Channel picked that up? That's a good question why the Golf Channel hasn't picked it up. We talked to them, but well, our agents did. I don't know what ended up happening with it. We obviously never been on the Golf Channel. It was, we did eight episodes. So we did a full first season it was with the Back Nine Network, which I don't even remember, but it existed for a little while. And the Back Nine Network folded shortly thereafter. So we were, I guess, their number one rated show, you know. And but the the network as a whole, you know, they spent tens of millions of dollars and blew through it all, and I guess ran out of funding. And so, you know, we did that full the first season. It was a lot of work, but it was also, you know, really cool once it was completed. But we could not believe how much time went into it, just flying around the country and. And shooting, it was really remarkable, but we had a good time doing it. And, you know, we just did the one season. So there's been talks of reviving it, but nothing recently. So I don't know. It's be a decision for us to make. It was so much work. And of course, you know, it interrupts our daily routine. It's, I think we kind of thought they'd follow us around and film what we normally did, but instead it was really just shooting a TV show. Yeah. Well, listen, just like American Pickers, which I'm a big fan of, you got serious collectors who seemed like they were reluctant to give up any part of their collection. I guess they just wanted to show it off or they want more than the things are worth. Or there's one episode where you're trying to convince this guy, he had a large set, I think, of signed balls. And you're trying to convince him that two of the balls he had were really the only things that people wanted. And that it would in his best interest to sell them separately, but you couldn't convince him and you walked away from the deal. So is that true? Most serious collectors? Yeah. So it's a one thing about collectors, especially the serious collectors and top collectors, they have their own opinion and preconceived notion of what their items are worth, the best way to sell them, best way to market them, uh, the timing of when to give them to you to sell. And so when you're dealing with some of your more top collectors, yes, we're sort of at their mercy. Like they don't always want my advice. I may think my advice would be very helpful to them, but they already have something in their mind. And so going doing the TV show really also made it difficult because here we're showing up with a camera crew to kind of try to, you know, memorialize this transaction. And it made you really realize, made me realize how hard some transactions are. It's not, most of them are not a simple back and forth talking about numbers. People want all kinds of other things or want to talk about timing or want to talk about whatever. And in this particular case that you bring up, we just disagreed on the manner in which to sell them, which was really frustrating because I think he wanted to sell them, or at least he claimed to, maybe he didn't. And we wanted to sell them as well, but, you know, selling them all. And it, what it was, was every single master's champion autograph golf balls. But the problem with that is there's like two or three or four very valuable ones. And then you've got like a Bernard longer one that's worth 20 bucks. And this like, it's so much more valuable if we can break them up. You know, trying to find one person that wants them all is just not very feasible because the guy that wants a Ben Hogan signed ball is not going to spend 80 grand just to get that one ball in the set. So it's just, you know, we weren't, we didn't have a meeting of the minds there and he didn't really want to cave and we didn't feel like, you know, marketing something in a way that we just didn't feel was the right way to do it. Yeah. I was. I I never got that set. People always ask me whether I eventually got that set. I've never gotten it. The guy still has it. Yeah. I get, you gained, you earned my respect from walking away from that deal because you could have made a killing on that if you had, you know, taken it and, I mean, really, right? If you had done it yeah, his I mean, way. 
honestly, part of me probably thought he was going to come back and cave to my demands, and he never did. It's been yeah. like three or four years, and he's, we still don't have him. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe after he passes, his wife will uh, <laughs> we'll be in touch with you. So listen, you kind of answered this question. I got a couple left early on, but do you have any words of advice to someone who has something they think is valuable golf-related in terms of when and how they should do something with it? Yeah. I mean, honestly, contact me or somebody like me and get our honest opinion. I think a lot of people don't, like, they want to come up with their own idea of when to do something or when the best time to sell something is. And talk to an expert and get their opinion. There should be no reason to be skeptical. They're an expert in what they do for a reason, whether it's, you know, golf memorabilia in my case, or classic car with somebody else's. Like, there are experts that know what they're doing and will give you the right advice. It's about finding them because everything's different. And, you know, it is worth talking to an expert. And don't wait to talk to them only when you've made the decision to sell. Get them involved early on because there may be different steps to do. If there's an autograph, for example, you'd want to get it appraised and authenticated by one of the big authentication companies, you know, things of that nature. There may be people that need to check it out and everything. And it's better to paper trail that early than make the decision that you want to sell next week and have to, you know, scramble to do everything or maybe not get it done in time. So, you know, most people contact us last minute and I would say, you know, start talking to people, get the conversation going. And maybe there's more things you can do to improve the value of your item. Yeah. Are there any blogs for collectors where they kind of swap information about their items or items they're looking for? You know, there's not enough. There's some face, there's a good Facebook group for golf collectors. There's not much in the way of blogs, I'd say. You know, the best information is probably, again, our archived auction section where you're able to look at a whole catalog of everything that's sold the last 13 years. Just go look through everything, read about it. I mean, read about the stuff you like, you don't like. And it's just the best education you can get is seeing what things actually sell for. That way, it's not what somebody's telling you you should collect or whatever category is hot right now. Just learn about absolutely everything, whatever piques your interest. Yeah. Last question. Can you share any insights into your personal life, hobbies other than golf, family, travel? I mean, it seems like you travel a lot to play. Yeah. I mean, golf is obviously, you know, number two behind my family. I've got a two-year-old daughter. I've got another one due in about a month. Oh, cool. You know, my wife and I, you know, live here downtown Boston. I love, you know, playing golf is what I mainly do. I just joined Boston Golf Club and travel to play golf. And, you know, anyone that wants to tee it up, I'm always willing to listen to that. How did a guy from Tampa end up in Boston? That's a good question. I have no idea. My (laughs) wife is a physician here in Boston. Oh, okay. uh, My job's more flexible and I work remotely. I just kind of follow her around. Yeah. Do you know what the new baby's going to be? It's going to be a boy. I don't have a name yet. We're actually looking at some golf-related names, but I haven't settled on anything. I kind of like the idea of Hagen when I was naming my daughter, but my wife just absolutely vetoed that right away. Well, what about Hogan? That- it's a possibility. I mean, I mean, if you look at my list of names, it's like, you know, Watson and Hogan and Morris and Crenshaw. all Crenshaw. Exactly. There's a lot of good names out there. So well, listen, we haven't said well, anything yet. Well, how about Gordon? That's a good name. You know what? It's a decent name. I'll put it on the short list. <laughs> okay. Listen, Ryan, thanks for your time. This has been really interesting, and I'm sure the Golfial listeners will appreciate it. Do you want to plug anything before we... Uh, Sign off? No, man. It's just, you know, look at our auction. Read about it. I mean, 95% of the hits on our website are people that just like reading about cool, you know, golf history. And I think that's very important for anybody. So go to greenjacketauctions.com. Check it out. It's a fun read. I'm not, you don't need to buy anything. Just come read about it. And I'm pretty sure you'll be intrigued. If, if you're listening to this podcast and you like golf, I know you're going to like reading through it. Cool. Thanks, Ryan. All right, Gordon. See you, man. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. 
Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to golfyad.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com. 